Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you're not currently affiliated with a community, church, or synagogue, and would like to be part of the larger Beth Emanuel family, you can apply for long-distance membership at BethEmmanuel.org slash membership. I saw an article this week about the latest discoveries from the new James Webb Telescope. The scientists operating this amazing new orbital telescope turned its focus to peer into the deepest reaches of space, looking back through time, so to speak, nearly to the beginning of the universe. The telescope peered at objects that scientists estimate to be some 13.5 billion light years away. At that distance, they are examining evidence of the cosmos from when the universe was yet young. They expected to see simple nebulous gaseous proto-galactic structures, stars, and cosmic dust swirling around, which would eventually coalesce into the familiar big-scale spinning galaxies of today, such as the Milky Way galaxy in which we live. Instead, the James Webb saw massive galaxies fully formed. Joel Ledger, assistant professor of astronomy and astrophysics at Penn State, said, We expected only to find tiny, young, baby galaxies at this point in time. But we've discovered galaxies as mature as our own, in what was previously understood to be the dawn of the universe. If confirmed to be true, this discovery will upend most cosmological models forcing physicists and astronomers back to the drawing board to develop new theories about how galaxies develop and how the history of the universe itself unfolds. The inflationary model is now in danger of deflating faster than that Chinese spy balloon we shot down. It's big news, a huge discovery, and James Webb has only begun to peer into the heavens. It's still in its first year of operation. Professor Ledger said, We looked into the very early universe for the first time and had no idea what we were going to find. It turns out we found something so unexpected it actually creates problems for science. He's calling the mass of galaxies universe breakers because they break current models of the formation of the universe. The heavens probably have a lot more surprises for us. In today's Torah portion, the Lord says to Moses, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Exodus 25, 8-9 Jewish tradition explains that the Lord revealed to Moses the supernal heavenly temple, the eternal dwelling place of God. The Holy One, blessed is he, desired to have a dwelling place below, just as he has one above. Those who offer the gifts according to the Torah serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 8, 4-5 For Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9, 24 The tabernacle was also made in the pattern of the human body, which is made in the image of God. 
and the tabernacle was also made in the pattern of the whole creation. Let's start with the whole creation and work our way to heaven. In the creation narrative of Genesis 1, God separates heaven and earth. He creates a firmament above the earth, which He creates a firmament above the earth in which he hangs the sun, the stars, and the moon. The firmament separates between the waters above and the waters below. Mayim below, Shemayim above. We also call this the sky. The Hebrew word for sky is the same as the Hebrew word for heaven. Then he makes man in his image on earth below. And what does man do? He stares into the sky fascinated by the stars above. Long before the James Webb telescope, human beings stared into the heavens and saw the fixed and unmoving stars. They rotate through the sky above us, but they are unmoving in relation to one another. The starry sky, unreachable and awe-inspiring, became a metaphor for divinity itself. The Psalms declare, The Lord's throne is in heaven. We also saw seven travelers that never stayed still. They were always in motion. They are the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. We also saw seven travelers that never stayed still. They were always in motion. They are the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. These seven lights became the inspiration for associating the divine with the number seven. Seven days in a week, and the seventh day is the Holy Shabbat. Seven years in a sabbatical cycle, and the seventh year is the Holy Shemitah. A series of seven like that is called a hebdomad. In the book of Revelation, we read about the seven spirits of God, who are seven archangels, also called the seven stars and the seven lamps, alluding to the seven lamps of the menorah that cast their light in the presence of the Lord. Today, we know that the heavens, as they appear to us, are actually distant stars burning in the cosmos. We know that the moon is a planetoid orbiting the earth, and the earth and the other planets are orbiting the sun, which is itself just one of countless such stars belonging to countless galaxies that are flung across mind-boggling and seemingly infinite distances of the universe. The heavens, as we know them and understand them today, are not less awe-inspiring, but more so, far greater and far beyond what human beings might have ever surmised from staring into the sky with the naked eye. We also know that God transcends even the highest heaven, as King Solomon once said, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Notice that Solomon says heavens and the highest heavens, implying that there are more than one heaven. There are heavens and there are higher heavens above them. Judaism teaches that there are a total of seven heavens. The Talmud describes them as ascending levels. The first and lowest level corresponds to our atmosphere. Above that is the second heaven, the firmament in which the sun and the moon and the stars exist. The third heaven is the realm in which the manna was made. The fourth heaven is the place of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly temple, the heavenly altar. In the fifth heaven, the ministering angels worship God in song by night. 
In the sixth heaven, God stores the elements. The Talmud says that the seventh and highest heaven is the place of right and judgment and righteousness, the treasures of life and the treasures of peace and the treasures of blessing, the souls of the righteous and the spirits and the souls which are yet to be born and the dew with which the Holy One, blessed be he, will one day resurrect the dead. There too are the Ophanim and the Seraphim and the holy living creatures and the ministering angels around the throne of God. And the king, the living God, high and exalted, dwells over them. Chagiga 12b Is this true? Are there really seven heavens? The apostle Paul claimed to know a man, himself, who had been caught up into the third heaven, into paradise, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. It's possible that Paul didn't teach seven heavens. Maybe he only taught three heavens, sky, cosmos, and divine. Perhaps Paul meant that he ascended to the third in a series of seven. In the common Jewish view of heaven, there's not just one heaven. There's not just three heavens. There are seven heavens. Each one is a step higher than the one before. Kind of like levels going up a mountain, and at the very top, in the seventh heaven, is the place of God's throne. In Psalm 24, David asks, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Ascending the hill of the Lord means ascending to heaven. He asks, And who may stand in his holy place? The holy place is the highest heaven. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. He says that those who seek God's presence will ascend the holy hill. They will pass through the gates, following behind the king of glory. They say to the gatekeepers who are guarding the gates, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. In the ascension of Isaiah, an early 2nd century apocalypse created by Jewish believers in Yeshua, the Messiah passes through the seven gates of the seven heavens at the time of his ascension. The angels are dismayed, like those in the psalm who ask, Who is the King of glory? It is the Messiah, ascending through the seven gates of the seven heavens. He is the King of glory. Ascension of Isaiah depicts the Messiah passing through the seven heavens, but it presents the seven heavens more like seven levels of the concealment of God, where God is completely concealed in the lowest heaven and completely revealed in the highest heaven. In the lower levels, there appears to be good and evil, with his throne in the midst. But at the higher level of revelation, there is only good and the glory of God. A few weeks ago, Shalom ben Elisheva discovered another teaching about the seven heavens from early believers in Yeshua. This one comes from a book from the second century Bishop of Lyons, Irenaeus, titled The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Now, I'm always interested in what Irenaeus has to say because he had access to the writings of Papias, a collection of apostolic lore and teaching, and he himself was a disciple of a disciple of John. In this teaching, which I believe he derived from 
apostolic lore, he talks about the seven heavens, and he correlates them with the Greek version of Isaiah 11, where it says, the spirit of God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and godliness shall fill him, the spirit of the fear of God. Isaiah 11, 2-3. The Greek version adds one spiritual attribute, godliness, bringing it to a total of seven attributes, not including the introductory phrase, Spirit of the Lord. In the Hebrew version, you need to include Spirit of the Lord to get all seven. In the tradition Irenaeus has received, a tradition which could potentially go back to the apostles, each of these seven expressions of the Spirit correspond to one of the seven heavens, descending from the highest to the lowest. The spirit of wisdom is the seventh and highest heaven, then understanding the sixth, counsel the fifth, strength the fourth, knowledge the third, godliness the second, and the fear of God is the lowest heaven, the one closest to the earth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the seven heavens. The ascent up the levels of heaven culminate in wisdom, the highest level. Irenaeus says, Now the heaven, which is the highest above and encompasses the rest, is wisdom. And the one below it, understanding. And the one below it, counsel. And so forth. For as a pattern of this, Moses received the seven-branched candlestick that shined continually in the holy place. For as a pattern of the heavens, he received this service according to that which the word spoke to him. Thou shalt make it according to all the pattern of the things which thou hast seen in the mount. Moses copied what he saw on the mountain. He modeled the menorah after the lights of the seven heavens. We can also correlate the seven heavens with the seven days of the week. The lowest heaven corresponds to the first day of the week. Each day is an ascent, so to speak, toward the goal, which is the seventh day the seventh heaven, in which the presence of God rests, as it says in the Torah. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth, and heaven. According to this idea, the six days represent the lower heavens where God's presence is partially concealed. The seventh day represents the highest heaven because it's the place where God's presence rests. The apocryphal epistle of Barnabas makes a similar connection. As is, as is the case with the writings of Irenaeus, the apocryphal epistle of Barnabas ensconces early apostolic era traditions and teachings, including one about the significance of the seven days of the week, and especially the Sabbath. He compares the six regular days to 6,000 years, followed by the seventh day, the Sabbath, symbolizing the thousand years of the Messiah. But then he shifts to begin speaking about the world to come, the resurrection, and the heavens. Let me read the passage. It says, Moreover, 
He says, you shall sanctify it with pure hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24, 3-4. Unless we are wrong about this, no one can properly sanctify the Sabbath day, which God has already sanctified, unless he is completely pure in heart. Behold, therefore, certainly one properly resting sanctifies it. When we ourselves, having received the promise of resurrection, wickedness no longer existing in us, and all things having been made new by the Lord, shall be able to work righteousness, then we will be able to sanctify it, having been first sanctified ourselves. Further, He says to them in Isaiah, Your new moons and your Sabbath I cannot endure. Understand what he is saying. Your present finite and temporal Sabbaths are not acceptable to me, but that eternal Sabbath which I have made is acceptable. When giving rest to all things, I shall make a beginning of the eighth day, that is, a beginning of another world. That is why we also observe the eighth day with joy, the day also on which Yeshua rose again from the dead. Barnabas 15, 6-9 It sounds more complex than it is. Let's think through it together. According to the teaching, the seven days of the week correspond to 7,000 years and the linear progression of time. The six weekdays represent the ordinary course of human history during which God's presence remains largely concealed from the eyes of humanity. The seventh-day Sabbath represents the Messianic era, that thousand-year future kingdom when God's glory will be revealed universally. The eighth day hints to a day outside of the seven-day cycle. The eighth day represents something that comes after the Messianic era, something outside of time. The eighth day represents the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Now we have laid the groundwork and we are ready to read a mystical passage from the early Jewish believers preserved in Clementine homilies, which describes God's relationship to the universe in geometric terms. I think the passage might have originally been from an apostolic teaching on Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is one. Hashem Echad. One, then, is the God who truly exists. He presides in a supernal form at the heart of that which is above and that which is below in two directions. It extends forth from him as from a center, the life-giving and incorporeal power. The whole universe with the stars and the regions of the heaven, the air, the fire, and if anything else exists, is proved to be a substance infinite in height, boundless in depth, immeasurable in breadth, extending the life-giving and wise nature from him over three infinities. So far, so good. It's an innovative idea. Instead of depicting God outside of the created order, God has placed himself, so to speak, at the center of creation, and the whole universe extends out from him in six directions, corresponding to length, breadth, and height, three infinities. 
It must be, therefore, that this infinite which proceeds from him on every side has at the center of its existence him who is above all and thus possesses figure. For wherever he be, he is, as it were, at the center of the infinite, being the limit of the universe. And the extensions of length, height, and breadth, starting with him, possess the nature of six infinities. Now listen to this passage, which explains the six infinities, and think about how we shake the lulav during Sukkot in six directions, like the wave offerings lifted up in the temple. One direction starts with him, extends into the height above, Another extends into the depth below. Another extends to the right hand. Another extends to the left. Another extends in front. Another extends behind. So the idea is that God is at the center and the universe is extending out from him infinitely in these six directions. The passage says, Therefore he himself alluding to a number that is equal on every side of him, completes the world in six periods of time, himself being the rest. Okay, so God completes the world in six so-called days of creation, six periods of time, six temporal intervals to correspond to these six infinities of our three-dimensional world. These are the six days of creation. The six days of creation extend out from him in six directions as six infinities. He himself, however, remains unmoving at the center. He is the cessation point. He is at rest. So, he is the seventh point, the Shabbat the eternal resting point. Not the seventh point at the end of a sequence of seven, but the central point from which the other six extend. He is like the central lamp of the menorah. The passage goes on, and having the infinite world to come as his image, being both the beginning and the end, for in him the six infinities end, and from him they receive their extension to infinity. To be infinite, the extensions of the six directions ultimately loop back to their point of origin, like a circle passing through a center point. You would have six circles on three perpendicular axes, all sharing a common center point. Think of the four compass directions and add up and down. God is the stationary point from which all things emanate. He is the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end. The passage says, This, then, is the mystery of the Hebdomad. A Hebdomad is a group of seven. So, it's telling us that this is the significance and hidden meaning behind all of the Bible's sequences of seven, including the seven days of creation and the seven days of the week. 
It also gives us a tool to visualize the seven heavens in a really different manner. Rather than seven ascending levels with God at the top, it's six directions in three dimensions with the seventh at the center of them all. God is unmoving. He is at rest because all things extend from him. It says, For he himself is the rest of the whole, who grants himself as a rest to those who imitate his greatness within their little measure. What a beautiful thought. God is the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. The timeless and unchanging world to come exists in his image. It's the seventh heaven. The homily says that God grants himself as a rest to those who imitate his greatness within their little measure. I take this to refer to the Sabbath rest. Those who rest on the Sabbath by our own little measure, we do so in imitation of his great rest. And as a reward, he grants his own presence. In this way, the Sabbath becomes a sanctuary in time. And we can understand the meaning of the Sabbath rest as something much more than just taking a day off from labor. It's a state of being, specifically God's being, in which there is nothing unfinished, nothing incomplete, no future or past, nothing but the eternal now of the perfect The celebration of the Shabbat and the observance of the Shabbat draws us into this state of cessation of motion and the divine state of pure being, the oneness of God. God desires to bring that perfect presence here into this world, and so he bids us make for him a sanctuary. Where his presence abides, there is rest. And all the universe extends out from that center. He desires to dwell in our midst and within us. He says, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, 15. All of these ideas need to be compared with Colossians 1, 15-20, which depicts the Messiah as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom all things were created, and in whom all things will be reconciled, the source and the terminus. Upon him rests the ladder that ascends through seven heavens, and he has the words of eternal life. This also reminds me of an extremely cryptic passage in the Gospel of Thomas, where the angels guarding the gates of the heavens ask those seeking to ascend to pass through the gates, What is the evidence of your Father in you? Yeshua advises them to reply, It is motion and rest. In other words, somehow, God is both the Creator the emanator, the maker, the mover, the shaper, the changer, and yet, at the same time, the unchanging, timeless, eternal, the beginning and the end, the fixed point and unbegotten, 
the Shabbat rest, the ceasing. And we are made in His image. Our souls are in motion, but they are emanations of rest. The homily concludes, For He is one alone, sometimes comprehensible, sometimes incomprehensible, sometimes finite, sometimes infinite, having extensions which proceed from Him into infinity. For thus He is comprehensible and incomprehensible, near and far, here and there, as being the only existent one, and as giving a share of that mind which is infinite on every side. And because of that, souls breathe and possess life. If they be separated from the body and be found with a longing for him, they are carried along into his arms, as in the winter the mist in the mountains rises toward the morning sun. And learn from it And find rest for your soul